This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I am Scott Radley sitting in for your usual host, Rick Zamperin. He'll be back. Tell you what's coming up today. We're going to be talking about the HSR and a strike vote and whether or not it should operate LRT if and when that ever gets built. We'll be talking about what happens if you have a coworker who is holding or taking public positions on things that you are finding not just offensive, but really upsetting. We'll explore that one. Uh, Taylor Swift, concerts in theaters now, not just at arenas. Is that something we'll be seeing a lot more of? It is five years since cannabis was legalized in this country, but the industry is not exactly percolating along. We will talk about why that is. And the Ford government introduced legislation to lock down the green belt. Is this going to make this go away? And we'll talk about Sarah Jama as well, because that, of course, is coming up at Queen's Park. All that and much more after this. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Depending on how things go in talks, assuming talks happen over the next few days, couple weeks, we could be looking at a transit strike in the city here by October the 25th. Let's hope not. That is one of the stories that we want to talk to talk with our next guest about. He is Eric Tuck, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU Local 107. Eric, how are you this morning? I'm great, Scott. How are you this morning? I am terrific. Uh, let's start with the first and probably most important bit here for the immediate uh, situation. What is the status of talks? How are things going? Are we looking like we're not going to have a strike or that we're moving away from that possibility? So, Scott, I can tell you that uh, we've been talking. We've had several meetings uh, over the, the last 10 months, uh, basically. Uh, and I still don't feel that we're there yet. Uh, we've still got a long way to go. We've only got a couple of more dates scheduled. Um, we have not set a strike date at this point. Uh, we will be meeting with our members on November 5th to discuss next actions if we do not have a collective agreement. But we're hopeful that we can get there. We do have a couple more days scheduled. Uh, and it's really up to the city to come to the table and uh, to bargain in earnest. Okay, so October the 25th legally would be the date you could do it, but November the 5th is when next steps will happen. Yes. So, yeah, for, for the union, um, it's the, the employer that has filed for the no-board report. Uh, that no-board report takes effect on uh, October 25th, as you said. Uh, at that point, either party could take action. Uh, as I said, the union has not set a strike date, so we have no intentions of taking action uh, before we meet with our members and update them on the current status of our talks. That's going to happen on November the 5th. Okay, so well, I think you and I have talked about this before on the air. One of the things uh, you've, you've clearly said, and there's no secret about this, that one of the things that your group, your union is looking for is a raise. How much did the fact that the city gave its non-union employees pretty good raises this year, and then the unionized workers got some pretty decent raises over a number of years. Does is Are those things that you look at when you're deciding what to go after? So yes, we look at a number of things. Obviously, the first thing we have to look at is the cost of living. Uh, and as you know, last year the cost of living was 7%. This year it's projected to be around 4%. We also look at uh, the raises given to the non-union staff. Uh, we have about 1,100 non-union uh, staff 
bureaucrats, project managers that work in offices, uh, many of them working from home three days a week. Uh, they were given a 4% increase. And in addition to that, they were given market adjustments anywhere from 1% to 11%. Uh, so they got 4% plus, uh, in many cases, uh, up to another 11%. Uh, you know, our frontline workers who've been carrying the service uh, uh, for the last four years throughout one of the worst uh, global pandemics. We came to work every day. We continue to work every day. We can't work from home. Uh, we're looking for a fair wage increase that keeps pace with inflation. One of the other things that clearly is involved in these discussions is the LRT and what will happen when and if the LRT gets built and who is going to operate it. You're, uh, you've made no secret of your intentions and your demands that it be the HSR drivers, that you guys be running it. One question about this though, should we not, before this discussion is even held, should we not have some clarity on what this is actually going to cost? Because right now, uh, I understand why you're arguing for this, and I understand what the other side is arguing for, but we still don't have any idea, do we, what the operation of LRT is going to be? So we 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 do have an idea by looking at other projects of what the costs are going to be, uh, and I can tell you, you know, one of the things we've been looking very closely at is what the uh, Ottawa model uh, has been costing the taxpayers in Ottawa. Um, you know, it's, they're paying on average about $50 million a month, and their service has been down more than it's been up. It's a privatized uh, system for, for uh, operations and maintenance, and it's a model that's proven to cost more and more every time and deliver less. That's the P3 model. Um, if you look at what's happened in Ottawa, they've had two derailments. Uh, and they continue to have problems with their bearings. Um, it's, you know, the P3 model allowed Ottawa to have five major corporations come together and bid on that system for a multinational corporation to bid on it. But then they hired about 10 subcontractors. And as things come off the rails, and it has there uh, certainly many times, um, it has cost the taxpayers in the, in the form of payments uh, for services that have not been delivered and continue. It's an unreliable service. There's uh, very few safety standards, as they've shown with the derailments. Um, we don't want that for Hamilton. We have uh, the Hamilton Street Railway, which has provided safe, efficient uh, transportation here in the city of Hamilton for over a century and a half. Uh, we want HSR, it's a gold star brand, along with the Amalgamated Transit Union, to operate and maintain our system as they have done for a century and a half. We've delivered, and we've always delivered efficient and safe service. One of the things you just mentioned there was with, with the costs and with privatization in Ottawa with, with those private groups, um, it, it ties into something that you were quoted saying in the Spectator uh, yesterday or today, which would that these this if we was to go private uh, private, it would take away jobs and put profits in the pockets of shareholders instead of back in public transit. Do you believe really that a LRT system, whether it's run publicly or privately, is going to be a profitable enterprise? So the fact of the matter is, you know, B-Line is our most lucrative transit line in the city of Hamilton. It has been the bread and butter that has kept our system going. Uh, when you take the most profitable, and that's what happens with LRTs, because the ridership numbers built to such a level that they actually, uh, you have to enhance that service 
But if you're taking the money out of that uh, uh, project and putting it into the, the pockets of the shareholders who demand and have every right to demand a profit, uh, when you put it into profits, you're not putting back into service. So you cannot build future transit services. So, yes, it will be profitable someday. Uh, but the thing is, you know, you look at the 407, there's a perfect example, a highway that was built with our tax dollars and sold off to a private system for 100 years. It's one of the most expensive highways. The taxpayers can't even use it anymore because it's so damn costly. Hmm. Uh, Eric Tuck, wish we had more time, Eric. Uh, President of Amalgamated Transit Union 107. Eric, thank you for this today. Not a problem. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There was a story in the New York Post yesterday. Headline was Cornell University professor calls Hamas terror attack exhilarating, in quote, and exciting, in quote. Video of him giving a speech where he talks about how exhilarating it was seeing what happened in Israel the other day. And I came across a video interview of a woman in Toronto yesterday or the day before saying everything Hamas does is justified. And we've seen other examples of this. This is not parsing Palestine or Palestinians. This is clear support in some cases for what happened. So if you work in an office, if you work in a workplace somewhere and you're a boss, you're an employer, or even you have a coworker who does this, do you have any recourse? If you are a Jewish employee, you don't have to be Jewish, but I mean, that would be the most logical and obvious person who might be affected by this. And someone is expressing these positions. We have free expression in this country, but is there a line and do you have any recourse if that's the case? I want to bring in Greg Sills. He's a partner with Leek, uh, with Levitt Sheik, uh, LLP, call, uh, joining us right now. How are you this morning, Greg? Thank you for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. I'm good. How about yourself? I, I am great, although this is a really puzzling one because we do have free expression in this country. It's not unlimited. We do allow people to express views, and some of these views can be parsed into saying, well, I'm not pro-Hamas, I'm pro-Palestinian, but for other people who might be in the workplace or whatever else, they may not take it that way. What do you do if you're in that position? Is there a recourse or do you say, no, you're allowed to say what you want and I am going to just let it roll off my back? No, I mean, absolutely not. There certainly are limitations to free speech. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's exactly what the limitation of hate speech is intended to cover. I mean, what we saw with, with, with Hamas was not pro-Palestine. It was terrorism. Right. And there's a there's a massive difference between the two. Um, and in the workplace, there certainly is no space for those type of comments where you're supporting terrorist attacks and, and you know, beheading of babies and raping of women and children. It's just, it, you know, it's horrific stuff. And certainly, you know, if you are impacted by those and you certainly do not need to be Jewish to be impacted by them. Um, but in the workplace, you know, you should file complaints if you're feeling uh, unsafe in the workplace. Um, or, you know, to the extent that uh, your employer is coming out in, in favor of these pro-Hamas uh, stances, I mean, it may be such a case that your employment has been constructively dismissed because it may be untenable for you to possibly remain there. So certainly you don't just need to sit back and take it if it makes you feel uncomfortable. We have seen examples, even in this area, and I can think of one in particular a few years ago outside a, a TFC soccer game where a 
female journalist was doing a report and some person came up behind them and said something offensive on camera. And I believe, I can't remember which public company they worked for, but they were fired the next day. And I'm wondering, can you, if you are an employer and a member of your staff says something that you find problematic about this particular situation, can you fire them? Or again, is it nuanced enough or could they argue that it's nuanced enough that it's difficult to do that? Well, no, absolutely employers can, particularly if that if that uh, employee is managerial or public facing, you know, those those fall within um, the, the scope of being brand damaging behavior that employer certainly isn't does not need to condone and uh, can and it certainly doesn't amount to grounds for cause. Okay, so where is the line then? So if, if I if I was to go to a rally and say I support liberated Palestine, is that grounds? Or does it have to be much further than that? Or could you say simply by being at a rally right now under the circumstances with the timing of what happened, that's grounds? Where is the line? Well, it certainly, it certainly is nuanced and there's no black and white answer, right? Um, but, you know, the, the original the original um, demonstrations, those those were pro-terrorist attack demonstrations, and I think those are unequivocally grounds for cause, right? Uh, it was it was following a unilateral attack, and certainly it's not a it's not a message that anyone wants to condone, and nor nor is it one that an employer needs to uh, allow in the workplace. Um, you know, as things go, we're seeing people have more measured fence-sitting positions as, you know, no one likes to see civilian casualties on either side. And, you know, those type of, those type of comments are not the same as people who came out pro-Hamas at the outset. There, we have seen that I know of, that I've been able to find, we've seen no charges of hate crimes from any of this. Whether people agree with that or disagree with that, I'm, I was a little puzzled by that because I, I looked around and I thought, well, isn't this exactly why we have these hate crimes? Is it, it's not exactly your area, but is that because simply a volume that we don't know who to charge because there were too many? Or is there something else going on that they're disinclined that, that this would be a difficult thing to prove? Well, I mean, I, I think to the extent that uh, some of these demonstrations uh, and, and the conduct of people uh, is captured on video, I think that, that certainly there is no uh, nothing stopping uh, the uh, stopping officials from pressing charges on, on hate speech in, in circumstances where it can be demonstrated that there is evidence, right? But it's evidentiary based, um, you know, to the extent that someone tweets something, um you know, if they delete it, if there's what their intentions were, it, you know, they're, they're, when it comes to criminal conduct, there has to be, you know, there's two parts. There's the action and there's the, and there's the mental state for it. And so ha- having the intention is important. And when you see people attend those things and there's, you know, perhaps video or photo evidence of them in- engaging in, type of, in such type of conduct, it might be easier to establish those charges. But, you know, we may see charges cascade down the road. It, it's tough to say. Greg Sills, uh, partner with Levitt Chic LLP. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today is the five-year anniversary of cannabis legalized in Canada. And when it came onto the market, as you will well recall, 
the business went berserk. There were cannabis related industries popping up everywhere. Money just flowing into this as investors saw an enormous opportunity. Five years later, many people in the business world are seeing and saying, not so easy these days. Lots of companies have closed down. Others are finding it harder to make a go. Thousands of employees laid off. Is this a lack of interest in the product or is this simply that way too many people got into this and the market was so oversaturated that nobody as a result or almost nobody could really make a go of it? Dr. Michael Armstrong is an associate professor at the Goodman School of Business at Brock University. He joins us now. Dr. Armstrong, thank you for this today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, uh, I'm guessing, and I am not the business guy here, but I am guessing probably mm. of that thesis that's the latter more than the former that has caused problems with this industry. Would I be right? Well, there's some of both. Uh, the cannabis industry in Canada is heavily regulated. So we have uh, relatively high taxes on the industry. There's lots of rules like you have almost no advertising. The product's very plain and so forth. But um, we also have the classic, you know, capitalist boom and bust problem uh, in Ontario and most of the Western provinces. There's really far more retail stores than the market currently will support. Um, and so that is making it tough for the individual stores to survive. The, the idea of the price and the legal stores I've not seen a whole lot of research recently, because maybe there isn't, although I suspect there might be, about whether this has in fact killed off the black market. And I suspect it hasn't. That was one of the things this was supposed to do. But you mentioned capitalism. If the black market marijuana cannabis is still way cheaper, is it not still going to survive? Oh, the, the illicit market, the illegal dealers are still very much surviving, but they've lost a big chunk of their business. Now, it's difficult to figure out how big because the dealers <laughs> the dealers don't fill out government survey forms. <laughs> Correct. But uh, Statistics Canada actually have a report this week. They estimate uh, about 70% of all cannabis consumed in Canada is now obtained legally. That might be an overestimate, but I think it's safe to say more than half. So if you think any industry in the course of five years loses half of its business, uh, like the illegal market has done, that's a huge chunk. Um, so I think, you know, Canada has demonstrated that yes, legal cannabis can compete against the illegal dealers. We've also demonstrated that legalization by itself will not drive the dealers completely out of business. Uh, you know, there are some people who just want the absolute cheapest cannabis. They don't care if it's been tested, uh, or if it's legal. Um, there's also a certain amount of consumer inertia. If you've been buying cannabis from your local dealer, let's say, you know, 10 years before legalization, you, if you were basically happy with what you got and he was conveniently bringing it to your door uh, at a price you're comfortable with, you didn't really have a, you know, big necessary incentive to switch to traveling, getting your car, driving to a legal store and maybe paying, paying a higher price. So just like, you know, you and I, if we go grocery shopping, we'll pick up, you know, a box of cereal that's our favorite just out of habit. Um, you know, I'm not going to comparison shop every box of cereal on that shelf every time. It's, oh, there's the blue box. That's my favorite. I'll buy it. So you, you, some of that is also true. Um, now, I, one of the reasons I say I think part of the problem is too many stores is if you look at the 
provinces with government-run stores in eastern Canada, so Quebec and the Atlantic provinces, they are actually profitable. And it um, turns out, particularly for Quebec, it's not because you know the Quebec stores charge higher prices, just there's not as many stores. So each individual mm. outlet sells more cannabis, uh, which means it can cover its costs. Okay. Whereas in Ontario, we have uh, particularly some of the downtown areas of cities, we've got more stores than the local market compete. They don't get enough sales to, to cover their costs. Well, and part of the reason I asked about the black market a moment ago, and it ties into what you just said, is there was a report that came out a couple of years ago that said because government requirements with taxes and other things had made it expensive, in order to compete with the black market, with the illicit market, the stores had to bring their costs down. And when you start to have to bring the cost down and you're still paying the taxes, your profit margins become impossibly small. And that's one of the reasons why so many of the places, in addition to the competition, that's one of the reasons why so many of the places have struggled to keep going. That does make it harder. Uh, absolutely. So uh, as you know, the, the tax, particularly the excise tax, so that's a tax that the government charges at the producer level when the producer delivers it, say, to the Ontario Cannabis Store, the wholesaler. There's a tax imposed, and that's a flat dollar a gram. So it doesn't really matter uh, from the government's perspective, <laughs> I should say. It doesn't matter uh, how low the retail price has gone. They're still getting their dollar a gram flat rate. So if you're picking up some of the discount cannabis, uh, I think it's $3.57 is uh, the lowest price I've seen lately. Uh, of that three fifty-seven, there's a dollar right there going to excise tax to the, to the provincial federal government. There's uh, something like another 50 cents of sales taxes, the GST, uh, PST. Um, so about 40% of that discount price is actually going to directly to the government. Right. And yeah, that makes it tougher for the retailer and the producer to have anything left. I have only 15 seconds, so there's a really tough question, but most markets, <laughs> most businesses, if it's not working well, the answer is let's grow the market. Let's make more people use it. But do we want to do that with cannabis? The government definitely does not. So when the federal government legalized cannabis, their balancing act was we want to make this legal product attractive enough to get all the existing users into the legal market, but we don't want it so attractive that we get new users starting up. So that's why they prohibit most advertising. Yeah. That's why we have the plain packages. Uh, it's an awkward balance uh, and is something that maybe could be tinkered with over time. Dr. Michael Armstrong from Brock University, very much appreciate your time today. Thank you for this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yesterday, Ontario's housing minister introduced legislation to return land from the protected green belt that was previously removed for development and uh, and now to enshrine this basically into not being able to use it for anything anymore, essentially to, by law, protect this land. Uh, let me bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Colin, I guess now that they've done that, this pretty much ends this whole story, right? Well, that's what the government <laughs> would like to hope. In fact, that's what the uh, housing minister was asked yesterday. If he feels like you know, this kind of closes the chapter in the entire Greenbelt affair. And he said, you know, that's obviously what he's hoping this will do, right? Putting everything back into a box very neatly, putting the lid on it, tucking it away so that no one can see. Oh, except for that uh, RCMP investigation that is still kind of, you know, bubbling uh, behind the surface. So I think I think the government is kind of hoping that this will at least tamp down the political blowback. 
Uh, but, you know, what about the criminal investigation that's currently being conducted by the RCMP? That one, no matter what the government does, it cannot undo that problem for itself. And that one is going to continue. If, if not for months, it, it could be for years. Uh, you know, I want to go to the political part in a second, but let's go to the legal part for just a second, because there's a story in the Toronto Star today. Uh, I believe it was today. No, yesterday. Pardon me. It was yesterday. And let me just read the lead of this one. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police declined to pursue a criminal investigation into Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's actions during the SNC-Lavalin affair because, in part, the federal police force was thwarted in a bid to get confidential cabinet materials, newly released documents show. In other words, and if you read the whole story, the Liberals refused to release cabinet documents. The RCMP says, well, without them, we don't know exactly what happened. Therefore, we're not going to investigate. It's a bizarre scenario that essentially says, well, we just said we're not going to give the police anything that might be evidence and therefore they go away. Could Doug Ford not then do the exact same thing? Could he simply not say, we're not giving you documents and the RCMP has now shown that's enough to take away any kind of investigation? Uh, Yes and no. So it is going to be an interesting scenario because we have seen the government assert cabinet confidentiality before. In fact, whenever, you know, Global News tries to file a Freedom of Information Act request, Often we are shut down because of cabinet confidentiality. There are multiple layers to this investigation, though, because, A, both the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner have been given access to cabinet confidential documents. So if the government gave them to the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner, how can it then make the argument that it cannot give them to the RCMP? Secondly, is the RCMP able to access, pardon me, is the RCMP able to access documents via the Auditor General or the um, Integrity Commissioner? Can they basically circumvent the government and say, somebody else has these documents, can we go and get them from there? And thirdly, a lot of the questionable stuff that happened with the Greenbelt investigation didn't really happen within the confines of cabinet and secrecy there. It happened between conversations with developers. So the big question is, is, you know, what happened in those relationships with the government and developers? What about the premier's personal cell phone? Uh, you know, he's has he had conversations with developers in the past? So those kinds of conversations are not subject to cabinet confidentiality, and that could potentially come up in an RCMP investigation. And as we said a moment ago, there is also the political side of this that, I mean, and we understand exactly why the opposition parties are not going to easily step away from this. This is, uh, this is something that we'll be hearing about politically as well as with that RCMP investigation for a long, long time. Um, I, I do, and I wish we had more time to talk about that, but I do want to go something else really quickly with you, Colin, that came up and it's got real local connections here. Uh, House Leader Paul Calandra introduced a motion of censure against Hamilton Centre MPP Sarah Jama yesterday for her comments regarding the Hamas-Israel terror attack on the weekend. If this is successful, walk us through, what does it mean if this were to pass What does it mean? What does it do to Sarah Jama? How does it affect her ability to serve or to work within the legislature? Well, it essentially is a legislative censure. So if Sarah Jama, uh, according to this motion, they're asking for her to apologize in the Ontario legislature and retract her comments that she had made on social media. If she does not do that, if the House approves and adopts this motion, then essentially 
um, she would not be recognized to speak by the speaker. So she could raise her hand as much as she wants. She could, uh, you know, ask for um, a, a speaking time, but the speaker would just essentially not recognize her. And, and that's the will of the legislature. If it is the will of the legislature, that would be the direction given to the speaker and the speaker would kind of have to abide by that. It, it is a pretty blunt instrument, right? Providing or preventing an MPP from speaking also means that, you know, she cannot speak on behalf of the voice of all um, all Hamiltonians in her riding. So that would be a pretty blunt instrument to use. But the government is looking to kind of draw a very strong position on this for themselves. And that's why they are looking to have this censure uh, in place. And, and does a censure, and Colin, does a censure work the same as any other vote? Is it simply a majority in the legislature? So the Conservatives with a majority government could pass this by themselves? No, typically motions uh, are have to be adopted by the legislature as a whole. And so all it would take is for one member to say no, and that would be the end of it. So, you know, chances are this might not necessarily pass because all we need is one NDP MPP to say, say no. In fact, there's many times when the NDP will bring up motions and it's the government house leader himself who will shoot shoot it down, whether it's, you know, a moment of silence or a recognition of this or, or, or you know, even a motion to uh, eliminate the entire Greenbelt plan, as an example. Um, all it takes is one MPP to say no, and they can completely thwart or derail a motion. So, and these things are non-binding by the legislature anyway, so they, they don't carry a lot of weight. Sometimes they're symbolic. It's only when you're directing the speaker that it actually has some teeth to it. That is Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Uh, there is always something going on, and somehow Hamilton seems to often find itself in the middle of these days. I don't know how that is, but Colin, we always appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Taylor Swift is uh, is not is doing something that is not certainly unprecedented. There's a lot of things, but one of the things that is being done now is her concert has moved into theaters. This is not the first time this has happened. Lots of concerts have been shown in theaters. Hers, however, made 126 million dollars already. Which makes you wonder if more artists are going to look at this and say, well, this is, this is the way to do it. And if more fans are going to say, wait a second, I can spend $1,000 on the secondary market to get a pair of Taylor Swift tickets, probably more than 1000 and sit so far away that she will look like an ant up there that I can't really see anything, or I could spend... 25 or 30 or 50 to go to a movie theater and get a great view of this. Eric Alper is a publicist and music commentator, joins us now. Eric, how are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? I am, well, I'm good that I have not spent $1,000 on any secondary markup tickets for Taylor Swift, first of all. But is this something that other artists, now Taylor Swift's in a unique position right now, but is this something that other artists are more and more going to be looking at now saying, hey, wait a second, we can really move some tickets for a show through a film in a theater. Yeah, and and more importantly, they get to control the brand that is whatever artist that it is. You know, in the last 10 years, we've seen Justin Bieber's Never Say Never. Michael Jackson's This Is It was in the movie theater just four months after he passed away. We've seen a lot of pop artists like Hannah Montana and One Direction and Katy Perry all go through the theatrical route in order to shape their brand, to give fans something 
like that they are up against to show the strength and the determination of the artists and to show oh how hard they worked and how <laughs> rock bottom they hit in order to achieve their dreams. But this is different because Taylor Swift bypassed the Hollywood studio system and did the deal directly with AMC theaters, meaning that she said, I could be my own producer. I can put up my own money. I'll hire the director. I'll hire the editors and pay for it all. So I own everything and I'll just make my own deal. I don't need Paramount or 20th Century Fox or any of the other primarily um, useful distributors. So this is interesting because now she gets seemingly 100% of the profits. And that is what I'm sure the Rolling Stones are taking a look at and saying, yes. you mean we can take 100% of the profits and not, you know, the normal 15%. That's going to be interesting to see because the pop artists already do this to a certain extent. It'll be wild if you start to see sticks and Kansas and Journey and Randy Bachman yeah. all start to kind of think about doing the same thing, even if it is only for a day or two. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that. I mean, look, I love sticks uh, and have loved sticks for many, many years, but I don't know that they're going to be able to move the needle or even fill a theater at this point. Uh, and, and I'm talking about fill a theater. You can fill a concert venue, but to have theaters all over the place to be expecting they'd be filled, I'm not sure that works. But certainly Taylor Swift or, as you say, the Stones, there are groups that can certainly do this. And this this concert, this Taylor Swift concert that is playing, the Eras Tour, though, this is not a, as you described, that the documentary of the, you know, the hard scrabble upbringing, what I've overcome. This is purely just the concert, right? There's no documentary fa aspect to this. This is simply recording the concert and showing it. Yeah. You know, in order to keep it down um, below the three hour mark. Um, her shows are about three hours and five minutes long. So they had to cut out a number of things. But even if you went to see the show and you were able to see Taylor Swift, as you say, like an ant, and you were just staring at the screens, what this was able to do was have 12 or 13 cameras in high definition, literally on stage. So you see her perspective. You see the dancer's perspective. Um, you see just an entirely new angle of this tour. So even if you were just watching the Jumbotron cameras the entire night, um, this gives you um, more than just a really great expression of her face or a dance move here and there. These cameras caught everything. And it means that you're literally on stage with Taylor Swift and the crew. Um, what's interesting, you know, going back to, to, you know, the sticks in Kansas, it's funny because I've often wondered who actually goes to see the operas, for instance, that are there's in a ton of them. theaters. There's a ton yeah. of them. And or like Andre Ryu. And what it is is it's Andre Ryu live one night and then the theaters around the world kind of do it. And it does fairly well. Now, I don't think it's going to do a hundred million dollars like Taylor Swift does, but then very few things do. But it is content for the theaters. And right now the theaters don't really have those blockbusters to to show and fill, you know, um, four screenings a night, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, like they used to. And that's exactly what mm. the Eras Tour is doing with the amount of screenings that they have. So you mentioned about how this is a real possible, possible cash cow for the artists, how they could look at this and say, I can make a ton of money. I do wonder though, if there is a downside to this for them that yes, you may make extra money, but if I am now a fan 
and I've bought those tickets in the back row and paid a fortune and had to take the GO train into Toronto and, or take pay for parking and pay exorbitant amounts for this and that and the other. And now I go to a movie theater and I have a way better view. It is way more comfortable. It's way cheaper. Next time that artist comes to town, do I simply say, I'm just going to, if it's on in a theater, I'm going to do that and save the money and not spend it on the concert. I think that there'll always be people that are like that, but I think for people that have seen the heiress tour, specifically the the film, I think it makes them want to go see her even more. You know, they're certainly not going to show if Ed Sheeran or Drake or the weekend decide to do something like this, they would never announce it before the tour happens and they'll never show it. I I think before the tour happened, I don't think you ever want to give fans a choice of, do you want a cheaper version of this or do you want a more expensive version? I mean, they do when it comes to releases, but Taylor Swift timed this perfectly. Nobody knew that this was going to go on until not even a fifth of the way of her tour. Well, and Um, Eric, and nine out of 10 people who tried to get tickets couldn't. So you also have this, you know, you also have this overflow audience that was unable, even if they wanted to get tickets. So you're also, she's also in a unique position that way that, you know, that it's, uh, it's a different position. Anyway, it's a fascinating one. It's, it's, you know, good for her. Um, because the one thing Taylor Swift needed was another hundred million dollars. Uh, she's, (laughs) you know, she's not. And to prove to her boyfriend that she's worthy. Yes, apparently, uh, I think it's the other way around. I think he's going to be the one who will always be trying to prove his worthiness. And I still expect that come a year or two from now, there will be some album about Travis Kelsey. He won't be named, but about the heartbreak of love. And uh, and Travis Kelsey will be the guy that she's singing about. But it's called Gridiron. You know that, that something is There about. you go. Let, let's, hey, let's hope for long-term love for both of them. But, Absolutely. Um, but who knows? Uh, we, we will see. Uh, Eric Alper, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. We'll talk soon. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I am not, definitely not a fan of the slasher horror movies. There was a time when it wasn't uh, just, yeah, you know, the scary stuff doesn't do it for me. But, but I know there are a ton of people who love that stuff. Absolutely love that stuff. My question, and I think a fair question, is why? Why do we want to do something or expose ourselves to something that terrifies us? Steve Jordans is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, joins us now. Steve, how are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. Great to be with you. You as well, and I really appreciate you doing this because this is a complete baffler to me. I find no joy in testing the strength of my bladder to know (laughs) whether I'm going to lose control when someone jumps out from behind a wall or, you know, appears in the mirror behind the star of the movie or whatever. What is it about these movies and about the idea of being scared that appeals to people? Yeah, you know, it really connects to a very primitive process. Um, That's a very positive process in all of us, a process that supports what we call human connection. And human connection is really critical and, and really the, the formula for forming human connections with other individuals is really simple. Be with them and experience the same emotional state. Share an emotional state with somebody. Okay. And that's really what kind of, you know, if we imagine a bunch of kids going into a movie, yeah, there's the actual details of the movie and et cetera, and that's what turns a lot of us off when we get older. But if their emotional experience, they go through things where they get that fear and they go, ah, and then it almost immediately resolves into laughter and snickering at each other for being scared. 
And that's where the mojo is, though, that the fact that they're going through that same state together releases this uh, hormone called oxytocin, and they leave the theater feeling closer as friends than they did going in. Okay, but what about then those who watch movies at home alone? Are they purely just a psycho then? <laughs> well, there, there's, a, there's a sense, too, I think, of, of people enjoying flirting with fear and flirting with death. And, and I use the word flirting intentionally there because nobody really likes to be in a situation. Like, none of us want some intruder to bust into our door with, of course with a gun. It's like, oh, that would be fun. No. Um, but when it's safe, when it's at that distance, we can flirt a little bit with that feeling, um, knowing that ultimately we are safe. Um, I, I think a lot of us, like you, lose that desire to do that at some point in time. But you're right, there are some real diehards who really kind of live in that world and enjoy it very much. One of the things that you hear from people often is that after watching one of these movies, you know, they get a little antsy when they open a door into a dark room or whatever at night, they're home alone at night. Is that a common, everybody, you know, human thing that once you've been scared that that's going to linger? Or do, can some people watch these things and then just carry on as if nothing happened? Yeah, I mean, it's it's always tricky to say it applies to everybody. But what you're doing there is what we call priming in psychology. You're you all, Think of all these concepts you could have in your mind, all these thoughts at any given time. When you have certain thoughts or experience certain things, it's kind of like you give those ones a bit of energy, which makes it easier for them to come back to your mind later. So, yeah, if that creaking door is linked to something really creepy in a movie, and then you hear something a little like that creaking door, yes. you're much more likely to have that scary thought than if you hadn't watched the movie. Would it be a fair, uh, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but would it be a fair assumption that when you watch a scary movie, if the uh, the, the person or thing that's causing the fear is closely connected to our real life, it will be much more terrifying than if it is, you know, a clown, let's say, that has gone psycho, like in It, or if it's Freddy or Jason. If it's someone that we could look at and go, yeah, I could sort of see that as being realistic. Is that worse? It, well, it is almost in, in terms of exactly that process that I just described. When we talk about priming, what it, what it involves is like part of a previous memory um, is experienced and that triggers the whole rest of it. And so, yeah, if it's a clown and then you don't run into clowns for a long time, it's unlikely you're going to have that memory triggered. If it's, I don't know, some clean cut guy in a business suit <laughs> or whatever, and then you're walking down Young Street and seeing all these clean cut uh, men in business suits, that's more likely to prime it for you. So certainly something that's in your environment around, if they associate that with those scary thoughts, then you're much more likely to feel that after you've watched the movie. All right, one more thing. we got time for just one more thing really quickly, and that is, is there such a thing as too scary? Could there potentially be something that was done that could actually cause physical reaction that could be deadly? Or or even not deadly, but problematic? Yeah, yeah. deadly was a a big leap, but, but certainly, you know, there's times when you can go from flirting with fear to fearful, and we see this a lot with children. Um, I watched a, a, a video with one of my grandchildren where there was a character that was stealing a guitar and he was going to get caught. And, and she became very, very fearful. Like it wasn't that flirting with fear. It was she was mm-hmm. fearful that he was going to get caught. Horrible things were going to happen. We get better at separating those things as we age. But in children, we have to be very careful. That's why we have to watch what we expose them to. Yeah. 
it can really affect them uh, into not, their nightmares and bother them. Yeah, Maybe not just children either, some of us adults too. Uh, Steve Jordan is Professor <laughs> of Psychology at the University of Toronto. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.